We'll see. I'll put up the old headphones and we'll figure out what's going on. You told them I only have about 10 minutes. Is that yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. As long as they know. So all we have to do is we to, unmute, are we on mute? you and then... Just so they know, I, I have like 15, min, 15 minutes tops and then I got to go. <laughs> okay. I'm buying a Kia and I need oh to get the fuck out of here. I can't be doing oh this stuff. Come on, I can hear Those you. Those Kias. What's that? I can hear you. Are we, I'll, let me unmute myself now. That's the voice of Conan O'Brien, the great, great Conan O'Brien. We are re-airing this episode because it is, it's just so funny. I mean, it, this is a person who just makes me laugh so, so hard. He's a legendary writer, wrote for The Simpsons and then Saturday Night Live and then became an iconic television host and now has a podcast called Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, and I was on it. You can dig up my episode. I laugh really hard on that one, too, and I laugh hard on this one today. Um, I should mention a few uh, shows that I have coming up. There's a few tickets left for my shows in Levittown, New York, which is on Long Island, uh, Sag Harbor in the Hamptons at Bay Street Theater, New Brunswick, New Jersey, and then I'm doing The Old Man and the Pool in London. I'm doing it at, 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 in the West End in September. I'm doing it in Scotland in August. Spread the word, join the mailing list, give us some stars and the reviews on the Apple Podcasts, and enjoy my conversation with the great Conan O'Brien. I, will, I didn't think of this until just now when I was an intern on your show. Mm -hmm. You used to do that bit where you did children's drawings. Yes. Where kids would come to the studio and they would draw yeah. things. And you, and you had the interns, and I was one of the interns, do the children's drawings. Yes, yes. That was the, that was the, the lowest of the low. And, and uh, I got one on. And that was the first thing oh, I ever got on television. That's great. And it, and it was actually what we're talking about, which is it was, uh, it was the editing studio. It was like, this is the editing studio. And then it was someone, like a man shouting like, add more laughs, L-A-F-F-S. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a fun bit. That was a fun. We asked children, you know, it was Children's Day. Everyone could bring their kid in to the, to the office. And they drew some wonderful pictures uh, as an assignment. These are third grade kids. Let's see what they drew. And then you could just see, a child's view of just absolute horror. And the joke was always, I'm a maniac. <laughs> I'm completely full of, you know, uh, people are being beaten. Andy's in S&M wear, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it's just through the eyes of a child, which is just what one you want to see. One of my favorite things about this show, I'm sort of a completist. I watched like so much of that era mm -hmm. was the in the year 2000 bit mm -hmm. where, uh, you know, you'd say in the year 2000, blah, blah, blah will happen. And that was the, the setup. But it was, ne I love that it was never acknowledged that two, that the year 2000 was like two or three years away. Yes. You know, it's, we started doing that bit in Chicago. Uh, I did it with Robert Smigel and Bob Odenkirk and a couple of other performers in Chicago at the Victory Gardens Theater. And we did it in 1988. And so the year 2000 was like a, you know, we all grew up in the 60s. And so in the year 2000, it felt like <laughs> yeah. there'll, be, there'll be flying cars. It was this catchphrase. So 
then I get the show in 93 in the year 2000, seven years away, but we still call it in the year 2000. And then it was just, a, it was a joke bucket and we're holding flashlights under our faces. And then we started closing. <laughs> then it was like 1999. And then I think when it hit 2000, we just kept saying for a while in the year 2000, because we didn't know what to do. We just didn't know what to do. We never knew we'd be on the air that long. So, you know, my favorite thing about it is that also you never, there's such a straight facedness to the bit that you never acknowledge that it was a a year away or six months away. Yes. No. In the year 2000. And it's like, wait, it's March 3rd, 19. In the year 2000, (laughs) man will live with beast and beast shall conquer. You know, one of my favorites was in the year 2000. Apes shall ride horseback, and horses will ride ape back. (laughs) Who are we making, who are we delighting with that joke other than some other comedians? But it made me happy. I was listening to your podcast last night. Your podcast, by the way, is my favorite comedy podcast. It's one of these, do you ever have this with stuff where you do comedy professionally for, you know, Right. And so you're you become immune to laughter at a certain point with this like let's say a certain type of comedy. And then at a certain point you're like, oh my gosh, I found laughter again. And that's how I feel about your podcast. Well, that's first of all, coming from you, that's a very uh huge compliment. And I thank you. There is something that I I really enjoy about um, as you know, there's something about this podcast world, which I'm really relatively new to, and it's just a, a lot of fun, is that it's uh, when you're doing it, it's very private, and it really yeah. does. For years, I had people saying, um, we really want to get the Conan in the writing room out to people, but how do you do that? And I feel like this is the closest approximation if I go on a rant or I go down a wormhole uh, it's the closest approximation of what it's like to be in a writing room with me and how my mind works. And also the interplay with people is so much fun. I mean, uh, when you did, I'm doing this, uh, my part of the podcast uh, from my house right now, Yeah. Uh, as, you, as you know, because we all have to do that during these times. And I'm talking to you over the wireless. But, uh, but what's really funny is I... Um, I was headed upstairs and this woman, there's this woman who works for us. And she, I said, I'm up to do a podcast. And she said, oh, who are you doing it with? And I said, uh, it's Mike Birbiglia. And she was like, oh my God, I was listening to you and him. Uh, this is when you were on my podcast. Uh, and she said, she was just howling while she was hiking on this trail. And oh that gosh. people, she said people were looking at her funny because she had her headphones in and she was yes. cackling uh, and there's just this nice little, um, there's something sweet and kind of secret about it all, even though it's being put out, you know, to a lot of people, there's something that isn't ruined. And when you yeah. put big, when you put a studio audience and big TV cameras on things, it's exciting and it's fun and it can be really funny, but there's also something that you might lose that is preserved in this weird format. The thing about your podcast is it's sort of the writer's room version of yourself. And that was always the legend in the comedy circles about you 
even when I was coming up in the early 2000s, was like, Conan O'Brien, people would say this you know, emphatically, has always been funniest guy at SNL in the writer's room, funniest guy at The Simpsons, could just go and go and go and go. And, uh, and it's interesting because the podcast, I do feel like, allows for the complexity of your personality as opposed to like the two-dimensional, like here's the, here's what the Conan O'Brien character is. And it's more like right. who you are. Well, uh, again, that's nice of you to say. I, I, one of the things I, people forget when you're a host is think about it. You're a host. So I don't, uh, I don't go on other shows a lot as a guest, but occasionally, you know, Stephen Colbert has had me on and I'll go on and it's really liberating because I'm not, I don't have to make the trains run, yeah. you know, I can. And so um, I've really enjoyed the, I think the two times I've gone on his show, I've just uh, completely let it fly because when you're the host, um, if you think about it, you are your job really is to take care of somebody. So yes, when you're the host, you can be funny doing the comedy and 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 all that, but you you're constantly looking at what's the next thing I got to bring that out, I got to present this, and you yeah. figure out a way to do it in your persona and in a way that hopefully is funny. But a lot of times, guests are people who they're actors, you know, they're 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 people that this is not their main skill is yeah. being in front of a crowd. They're terrific. They look great on a big screen. Sure. And so my job in that, or any host's job, is to take care of them and make them look as funny and relaxed as possible. Sure. So then it's, it's hard to, I always think that that is a job that I always take very seriously and I want people to look good and I, I, I want to take care of people and I'm, I, I'm, I'm empathetic about that. But- at the same time, when you're on the when I'm on the podcast, I just I don't know. I feel like I don't have to take care of anybody. I don't have to take <laughs> yeah. care of anybody. And um, you know, I have my assistants with me, Sona, yeah. who I've been with forever. Sona who, and Matt are hilarious. Matt Gorley, and they're both funny in different ways. Yeah. And uh, it's I think it must be Sona will just say you're a dick or you're stupid, <laughs> you're an idiot, and Matt Gorley yeah. will constantly point out ways in which I'm wrong, and I'll. I'll lash out at them and claim that I'm a genius and they'll <laughs> laugh at me. And, you know, I think that whole dynamic is just really uh, enjoyable. So yeah. it's really fun. It's really fun to do. And um, as you know, Mike, like the times that we've been able to like hang out together and there's been one or two occasions where there's just a bunch of funny people around and we're not being funny because that's what we're supposed to do. Yeah. We're being funny because that's what we did in grade school because we weren't good at other stuff. Yeah. And yeah. We, it's what we do. It's just yeah. what we do. It's like it's the way cowboys spit tobacco. Like that, this is what we do. We just act silly around each other. And it's kind of a joyous, uh, weird uh, verbal orgy. It's really fun. Yeah. And- um, people always say to me, oh, it must be rough if you're hanging out with these other comedians. Is everyone trying to be the funniest? And I think I, I'm i not aware of like, uh-oh, Mike just said something really funny. I've got to try and think of a tapa that'll knock yeah. Mike out of the top spot. You had Bill Hader on your podcast and it's such a good episode. And one of the things you pointed out is that in making a talk show, 
in the 90s and 2000s, you're competing against all the other talk shows. And now you're competing against like the world. Yes. You're, you're yeah. competing against anyone with a phone who's videoing their aunt who's you know spits milk out of their nose and right and it right. lands on a piano and the piano collapses you know whatever yes right and it's such there a was, good point i uh ran into ran, didn't run into i interviewed him but then we were talking after the show because he did it in person uh joel McHale of all people and joel McHale after the show was like oh you got to see this thing on youtube <laughs> it's fantastic <laughs> and so if you're if you've been in comedy, as long as I've been in comedy, you've you spent so much of your time trying to think of images that will really make people laugh, that they won't forget, that are gonna be great. Yeah. He showed me an image that's from, I think, I think it's from someplace in Canada, but it's of a guy, a family that kept a whole bunch of illegal fireworks in their house. And so the house you see is smoldering, it catches fire and someone had an iPhone and then it explodes oh and fireworks come no. shooting out. No. And you know what? It is the most amazing. It looks better than anything I've seen in right. a major it's movie. Than Scorsese. And it's, it's better than It's better than Oh, it's Altman. better than anything you've ever seen. Yeah. It's fantastic. And I'm, I don't know. I, uh, some people might have been heard. It might be bad. But the image itself is just, it's just absolutely like, that's what everyone's competing against. Everyone, that's going to get, that's what everyone's going to look at. And um, you and then exactly what you said, there's, there's, uh, we're in a country, well, we're in a country of what, 340 million people and everyone's got, uh, is, got a device on them and they're just all to be shooting clear, video. Everyone, Conan looked at his notes for that number, just so everyone knows. I always have a little post-it with the current population of the United <laughs> States and it's on my wrist and I update it every half hour. So anyway, to continue, we live in a country of 340 million and nine uh, people in this country. And everyone's got, think about it. Everyone's got a video camera going pretty much all the time. Yeah. And so what happens is one in a billion chance happenings will occur constantly and people will be getting them and putting them up on uh, you know, uh, up on the internet. And so what happens is you'll see uh, a squirrel, you know, boxing a dog and then the dog will jump into an airplane and take off and the squirrel yeah. will jump into a car and chase him. And it's just because it happened and it's yeah. crazy. And I'm sitting there with my writers saying, what can we do today? The law of averages is against us in this overwhelming way. And so- yeah. uh it it really is um it really has become it, it makes me think wow jesus the 90s we were just shooting fish in a barrel <laughs> it was like it was me and a couple and like three other or two other shows and that was it and we were carved out our own thing to do and it was different than what other people were doing and we could just go crazy and uh so that's it really is a different time now there's this amazing, you ever see Hearts of Darkness about the making of Apocalypse yes. Now? Yep. There's that moment where, and if people haven't seen this documentary, it's a knockout. It's almost like as good as the movie Apocalypse yes. Now. Yes, yes, it is really, actually. And and there's this moment where he, where Coppola explains that technology is going to move in such a way, and he was right. This was made in yep. the, the 70s. That right. the movie of the future that we're gonna love is 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 be is gonna be filmed by a, a 
a 12-year-old kid in Ohio who just happens to have a camera kind of thing. Yeah. And he's not wrong. No. No, he's, you know, one of the things that, first of all, an image that I take away from, uh, was it Hearts of Darkness, is that there's a great moment where they're showing outtakes from Apocalypse yeah. Now. And it's the <laughs> iconic scene where Marlon Brando has got the shaved head yeah. and he's Kurtz and he's in the cave and he's, I don't do a Marlon Brando, but he's in the cave and he's doing this long monologue and, and Coppola told him to improvise and it's getting very highfalutin. You know, uh, yeah, yeah. Brando's being very self-indulgent and he's, and he's lit in a very dark, mysterious way and he goes, you know, they send me the, the, the shopkeeper and uh, yeah, these people, they come and they... What am I supposed to do? You know, and he's and he's giving this speech, and all of a sudden he goes, and I find myself in a moment of, and he goes, swallowed a bug, and then they show it again, and you can see him talking and giving this speech where he's like, I find myself caught in a vortex of man's inhumanity to man, and then you see this little fly. Go in his mouth. And then he coughs and then just says, swallowed a bug. And I'm like, okay, that's fantastic. And then cut. And then, you know, the reel ends. And I was like, okay, that's better than any moment in Apocalypse Now. And that is reality TV gold just, you know, 35 years before there's reality television. That's what your show was in the 90s when you you broke up what people expected late night to be. And so, like, what kind of confidence does that take from you? You, It's like you were young. You were like 32. I was 30 when we started. You were 30? Uh, Yeah, I had just turned 30. I got the gig, I think, two weeks after my 30th birthday which took the sting out of uh, turning 30. Cause you know, you at 30, you're like, what have I done yet? To and I, I, I got the show and um, I remember <laughs> it's, mostly- it's so, it's so sad about your voice not changing. I know, I know. By the age of it 30. Will. <laughs> it will eventually. Uh, <laughs> they say it happens at 70. Um, but I- By the way, this is gonna air on your birthday, April 18th. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. So we'll all April celebrate on, on social media. It's my birthday today. Celebrate me. I, I, to answer your question, I think the thing that saved me is the volume that we had to do. We had to do so many shows. Oh, I had, that's interesting. I had no preparation. And I sometimes think that um, it really was being thrown into a pond uh, with cement shoes and yes. sinking to the bottom. And then it was the struggle to get to the surface and and also the sheer volume of, we were very ambitious about how much comedy we wanted to do. I didn't want to come out and just do a little bit of comedy and then talk to the celebrities. I really wanted it to be an episode of SCTV every night. And Robert Smigel did as well. We were both very ambitious about 
wanting people to get more cereal in the box than anyone had ever gotten before. Wow. And, and there was a lot of, um, so we made tons of mistakes. There was plenty of stuff that wasn't good, but we just kept trying things and, uh, and we would try weird ideas that were so left brain that I think, oh, I, uh, what? I look at them now and I think, what the fuck? What were we, I was barely, <laughs> I was always on the verge of getting canceled for like yeah. three or four years. And we'd do a sketch where I found a wallet and I'm holding the wallet and I'm like, well, I found this wallet. Should I return it? but it's got a lot of money in it. And I could sure use that money. What do I do? What do I do? And an angel would appear on one shoulder and say, return the wallet, Conan, return the wallet. And I'd go, hmm, I wonder if there's a different point of view. And on the other shoulder, a bear would show up. <laughs> and he'd go, hello. And I'd be like, uh, wait, who are you? And he goes, I'm your bear. And I'd go like, well, what's your advice? And he says, and his advice would be, when you are mauling someone, use your front paws. Only use your back paws after your prey has been disabled. And I'd go, yeah, but what about the wallet? And they'd go like, I don't know about wallets. And then he kept giving bear advice. And then the, the angel would get really frustrated and leave. And so... I realized, like, if I had pitched that to the network or needed to get approval, they'd say, "Well, oh, yeah. no, you should be you should be talking about Clinton and the Monica Lewinsky yeah, scandal." Yeah, sure, and, sure. You know, you should be doing. Uh, look what Leno's doing. He's doing this stuff that's right out of the news, and people can understand it. And I thought, no, <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I said I've said this to several comedians of your generation, which is that there was this whole period where we didn't know. I didn't get out of the studio. I didn't go places. Um, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that people were liking it this much. NBC was always really yeah. kind of cranky with me. And I was just That's the guy what you that talked about t- with Bill Hader. It's like you didn't yeah. know you were influencing this whole generation of people like me and Bill and Mulaney and all these people. Yeah. And now I'm thinking I wish that it's so, so funny because I wish that you guys could have communicated with me then. Because <laughs> it's, it's really sweet to hear now, but I was so anxious and you and I have talked about this, like yeah. I had so much anxiety and so many bouts of like real depression and this has yeah. failed and no one cares. And it went on for years. And then later on, people were like, you got me through law school, you got me through college. And I think, well, couldn't you have expressed that to me <laughs> in some way? <laughs> I, it's so funny because you. Can, I asked Bill Hader last night, like uh, if he had a question for you because you're friends and mm-hmm. I love... I love when you guys talk. It's so funny. And on your podcast and uh, your show in the nineties was like touch and go the first few years where they kept threatening to pull it off and off the air and it was week to week. And so Bill, Bill's question was, uh, uh, when did he, (laughs) this is medium bill. Yeah. When did he, uh, when did he realize he, he wasn't going to get fired from late night? That's a good question. I, Honestly, don't think. We went on in September of 93, and I didn't feel safe until 96. Un- unbelievable. Three so years? Three was, years? There was, there was three years of me being told every, you know, like, uh, you know, you'd get a rating every night, but then you'd get the real rating on, on uh, I think it was Thursdays. And I would come in and I would be just, you know, just acid in my stomach and walk in and, uh, you know, 
feeling like I was walking up a gal to a gallows to be killed. And then my producer would either give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And I would live or die by that. If I got the thumbs up and we did well in the overnights, I mean, in the, uh, in the national rating, I was elated. Yeah. And if we didn't do well, I was crushed. And it was only much later that I realized that the metric by which they figure this out, especially if you're doing it at 1235 at night and you're using the Nielsen system. <laughs> yeah. If one of your Nielsen, if one of your Nielsen, <laughs> if one of your Nielsen bo- people with a box, you know, literally yeah. we're talking about like there's 80 people with Nielsen yeah. boxes that determine the ratings for a 1235 show. If one of them has a head cold and takes NyQuil and goes to bed early, then you have a bad number. If, uh, if for some reason that person, uh, if two of them drink coffee at dinner and can't sleep and watch you, you had a great number. Yeah. And the network used to always act like, oh, they, people really hated your show last week because the That's number was absurd. down. And then you'd, you'd have a, a high number. And I eventually realized there's no correlation here between what happened on the show yeah. and what the number is. And I think um, that's something that is akin to, they say people that check the stock market every day are very unhappy people because yeah. they're constantly being fed a number which is often arbitrary and they're not stepping back. What you really have to do is turn off your cell phone, put it away and check that stock occasionally. But probably better decide, am I in? Is this something I'm passionate about or am I out? And check every now and then. But these, when you check something like that every day, yeah, it's like people that weigh themselves every day are like, oh my God, I'm up three ounces. I want to die. And you're like, what do you, this is awful. That's, That's what's so insane about when you took over for Leno and all that stuff where mm-hmm. they judged you based on your ratings for mm-hmm. like, a month. Well, what they what happened was, which was interesting, is they they pitched it. I mean, I've been over it a, a million times, but yeah. they what they were really interested in was a younger audience. So that they were really interested in was the demo, right? And uh, so that's all I thought about was do a show and we'll get a younger audience. And we did. We got a we had a very uh, great demo and a lot of young people watching. Uh, and then, of course, all the diehard uh, people who tend to be older, who were watching Jay, were less enthused. But um, all the advertising and everything was sold on the basis of the- Younger the, people. Um, the demo. And so we were getting this number that was really great. And then we were being told, yeah, but uh, you're not getting as many of those other people. And I remembered saying- Correct me if I'm wrong. You gave me a job to do, and I'm doing that <laughs> job. And and also, uh, we're following a late night show that's on at ten now, from ten to eleven, right. instead of ER or whatever. Um, <laughs> right. So, uh, how can you even tell how we're doing yet? And so, fortunately, I was able to uh, get some distance on that and go back to what is the goal here? The goal here, for me anyway, has always been when I feel like. Down, or I'm losing my way, or what's the point? Is I want to make stuff. Yeah. I want to make stuff with funny people, funny men and women that I really like. I want to make stuff that I'm proud of. 
I wanna make as much of it as I can while I'm alive. Yeah. And I hope it makes people happy. Uh, and that's the idea. And if you really get into this, uh, if you get into this other world of these different metrics and well, what are you doing now? Well, you know, are you on the hot list of these shows? I think misery that way lies because if you can, if you can, uh, I always think of like people like Neil Young who just in, in every decade have made stuff I really liked and they're admired by really young people and they're admired yeah. by people in every generation. Yeah. And so I've always thought that's the way to go is uh, um, try and, what did you make today? Did you make anything today that you're proud of? Uh, yeah. Did you did you really enjoy yourself in the writer's room? Did you guys put something out there that may not be trending, but you think it has actually a little bit of comedic protein in it? Like there's yeah. something there and it's not just, uh, you know, attitude or, uh, 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 or too easy. That, that, that's what I just keep going back to over and over and over again. And I think that's the, the way forward for all of us. That's the takeaway also from, I think, the Bill Hader conversation that you had, which is like, you're like, I wish I knew that I was influencing a generation of comedians. And it's like, well, you, I think you can never know. And all you, you can know. do is make the thing. Yeah, make the thing. And I remember the moment when I realized... The first moment we really got out of the studio was we went up to do a week of shows in Canada. They had had the, uh, I think it was the SARS outbreak and they wanted Canadian uh, government wanted to prove that it was out, that Canada was safe again. And they invited us to do our show there for a week. And we went up there and, you know, keep in mind at this point, it's been nine years uh, yeah. or eight years of, of being in Rockefeller Center and we went up there and it was just mania. I mean, oh people gosh. were, they knew every bit, they knew oh everything. And, uh, you know, they would escort me to a van after this, we did yeah. these live shows in a big theater and then they would escort me to a van and people would be like rocking the van. <laughs> and uh, uh, <laughs> but I never, and I remember calling, you know, like uh, Lorne Michaels and I was like, it's crazy up here. And he's always very, you know, yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I watched it tonight and it looks like it went well. And I'm like, no, no, Lauren, Lauren. I mean, they're acting like we're like, I'm a rock star. And like Andy and I are like the Beatles. It's crazy. And he was always like, well, you know, there, people are happy when you come to their town. I wouldn't overthink it, you know? And I was like, no, oh come on, Lauren. Oh my Lord. gosh. We do a thing in the show called The Slow Round. And mm -hmm. it's all based on like memories and things you remember from growing up. Yep. Do you remember a smell from your childhood that sticks with you? Wow, a smell from my childhood. Yes. My mother, she, she denies this now, but one of my, the early smells in my house, and I think this was in, something that was made in my mother's house when she was growing up in Worcester, Massachusetts. Yeah, Hello, that's where Worcester. I grew up. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a misunderstanding out there that I don't like Worcester because <laughs> I, I right. made a comment. I made a comment about Worcester once on Colbert, and I actually I uh, I do love Worcester, and I have a very uh, I have a soft spot for Worcester, and a lot of people I love come from Worcester, so um, I have no issue with Worcester, Worcester, <laughs> but uh, um, but it must be something that they did there. But my 
mom would uh, fry apples in a pan and I think she might've put some like molasses in the pan. I mean, this really, this sounds like it was 1820 <laughs> and we had no shoes and my mother found an apple and fried it in a pan by the side of the road. But I re- there's, there's a particular smell of these frying apples with molasses that made me, I felt queasy and I remembered saying to my mother, I don't want to eat this. And she said, you know, well, you're going to eat it. And me saying, <laughs> it's making me sick. And she said, it is not making you, it's oh not gosh. making you sick. And oh just gosh. then on cue, I threw up. <laughs> and so <laughs> that memory, I, I, I think oh I ran me halfway out of the kitchen and threw up. And so I didn't have to eat the candy apple, but I mean the candy, the fried molasses fried apple but i that smell is one of that might be the first neuron that really <laughs> fired for me and it's usually an aversion neuron you know what i mean it's not it's of course me being me it's not something pleasant like i remember the smell of my father's aftershave as he hugged me no it's the <laughs> fucking fried apple with molasses <laughs> My mother was like, you'll like this because we ate it in the 30s because we had to, and now you're going to eat it. But mom, Nixon's president, why would, why would we eat it now? He's going to save the country. Um, yeah. Do you have a childhood memory of like, an, like a time in your life where you were not an authentic version of yourself? Where oh. you really, yeah. Well, uh, it recurs. You act like it's just in the past. Um, I think, you know, we keep uh, rediscovering. Yeah, I went through a phase when I was a kid where I knew I was ambitious and I didn't even know for what, but I was ambitious. I come from a big family and I'm the middle kid. I don't feel seen. I'm sure a lot of kids don't feel seen, but I my... My parents are busy. We live in this sort of kooky, it's a wonderful life house, you know, that, <laughs> is this a good house or is it kind of a cr- falling apart? And, uh, you know, um, my dad's always off at his lab like late at night and you're wondering like, I don't know, do we have any money or do we, are we, it's a kind of a nice street, but it was, everything was confusing. I didn't know what we were. And um, so... It was a strange time and uh, I remember deciding at some point, I'm really gonna, I know, I'm the guy that's gonna know all about politics. I'll be Mm. a political guy. And I started, you know, reading the paper and I got an internship. Uh, This was, I was a little older then, but I got an internship or helped out in the congressional office of Congressman Drynan. And I remember thinking, yeah, yeah, politics. Yeah, the third ward, the fourth ward. We got to get the votes out. I'll go talk (laughs) to those guys over there. I'll find out where they're voting for. Yeah, yeah, let's get the, you know, Proposition 35.3. And this is the 30s. Yeah, this is the 30s. Let's get FDR elected. And I was (laughs) kind of spouting all this stuff and saying things. And I'll, I'll never forget, my brother Luke was like, uh, it was a quiet moment. And he went, <laughs> uh, I'm not buying this whole political thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
you know, because my parents were walking around and my parents, my parents were so distracted that they were like, oh God. yes, and Conan's a young politician. Oh my God. He's a, you know, because like Neil does this and, and Luke does that and Kate does this and Jane does that and Justin does this and Conan, why politics is his game. He's oh going God. all the way no. to the White House. No. And Luke just kind of quietly said, <laughs> kind of like, I think we both know. <laughs> I think we both know this politics thing. And I'll never forget it all fell away instantly. Oh my god! I realized I don't like it. Oh my god! That's I have f- no interest in it. It's boring. I don't get it. I wish to be doing something else. That's the funniest <laughs> answer we've ever had to that question. Yeah. It's so no, and I can, dead on. Yeah, but it's what we do. I think you know on the way to finding out. And trust me, it's a long journey. But on the way to uh, you know figuring out who we are. We take these wild stabs yeah. at things. And then later on, you know, you see, uh, I mean, I, I know that was, I saw a photograph from my high school. I went to Brookline High. I, went to, I saw the photograph of, I was on the editorial staff and I wrote editorials and I would write editorials about issues, you know, and I would say, well, let's tackle this issue with my editorial. And I, I thought I had a pencil behind my ear and <laughs> I'm a, you know, I'm a young I'm a young William F. Buckley with a lot of opinions. Yeah. And then that fell away. I remembered what happened is we, uh, I didn't even know this when I joined the newspaper, but once a year on April Fool's Day, they would put out a all fake issue. And I remembered finding that out by accident. And so I'm writing all these, I'm serious, you know, first I was political guy. Now I'm issues man. I'm a real journalist. I'm Woodward and Bernstein. I've got it. And I remembered keeping a pencil behind my ear because I thought if I have a pencil behind my ear, it's, well, it's undeniable. I'm a newspaper man. And then uh, they said, oh, we got to, man, we got to do this comedy issue. And I was like, what? And they said, yeah, we got to. And I just started writing stuff and then writing more stuff. And then I wrote a lot of that issue and they put it out and people were saying, oh, this stuff is, this issue is really funny. Wow, wow. And then I, I thought, hey, that was fun. Yeah. What was that? And then I tried to go back to being issues guy and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that fell apart. Like I couldn't- I had the I same thing, ca- same thing. I was a very serious newspaper writer in high school. Mm-hmm. I was the editor, editor-in-chief. And then we did, once we did spoof issues, it's like, oh, yep. this, this is actually the thing. Yeah. That's, and I think, I'm much better at the spoof issues than the real issues. There's this misconception that the comedian, if you can go back in time in a time machine, you'll spot the comedian. He'll be the guy who's, you know, putting a firecracker in the Dean's mailbox. Right. He's the one who's, you know, setting the clock forward 20 minutes He's the one who's, you know, throwing something out the window. He's the guy who and and uh, is, you know, digging up the power line and cutting it. And then school's canceled for two days, you know. No, we're introspective, moody. Yeah. No, A lot of times no one's talking to us. And then, uh, you know, I'm sure the Bill Hader at 18 is unrecognizable to the people that idolize Bill Hader now. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, 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 and so much so for so many people, um, you know, that we're not, it's, it's something I really do try to impart to young people is that 
don't look, I used to do this all the time. I used to look at people who were fully formed and then judge myself against them. And that just created yes, just that is such a good piece of advice: is don't judge yourself against something that is in a different stage of being. Yes, yes, it's and 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 even and look, actually, you know, the real discipline is to learn to never compare yourself to anybody uh, across the board because that way, again, lies misery and confusion. And and there's so many assholes who arbitrarily have a lot of money or they've arbitrarily had some success and they think they're better than other people when they're much worse than other people. (laughs) And so (laughs) across the board, it's a bad idea, but I see it with, uh, you know, young people a lot. There's that stage of life that I think is really tough, which is, you know, from the age of 10 to like, I wanna say 22. I mean, it's a long time, um, but there's a 10, 12 year period there where it's also harrowing and you don't know who you are and you don't know if you fit in in any way or you have anything to contribute. And then what are we shown all the time? We're shown people, you know, this is a machine that's putting people and projecting people in front of us, literally projecting them so they're much bigger than us and they're perfect and they're great. And we are, uh, I used to, I grew up thinking I can never be in comedy. Yeah because comedians and funny people are just so much more than I'll ever be. When you were a kid, was there ever a group that you remember who wouldn't let you in, that you really wanted to be in their group? Uh, I wouldn't say I really wanted to be in. There wasn't a group that I really wanted to be in, but there were plenty of, I, I felt alienated in, from a lot of different cliques as, as people do, there was, um, in my town, it's really interesting. There was, um, you know, Brookline has the reputation of being like this nice posh suburb and it is, but it's interesting. It's got these different striations and layers and and currents. So there's a big, uh, you know, I went to the Catholic church, uh, uh, St. Lawrence, which was right on Route 9 in Brookline. And um, that was populated by a lot of Irish kids, uh, Irish American kids whose parents worked for the town. Their parents were the coaches, yeah. they were the policemen, they mowed the lawn, and they were all Irish, uh, kind of, they'd, they'd wear their hockey jerseys. They were kind of tough. Um, they were, uh, gonna probably go to college, but maybe not finish. Like that was not their high on their list. Um, and they, I remembered very clearly them looking at me like, here's Conan, Conan <laughs> O'Brien's coming in. And my father's a microbiologist and I'm, I've got this big shock of hair and I'm super skinny and super sharp, sharp, sharp cheekbones. And I'm occasionally referencing like Mark Twain or saying something, you know, and I remembered them, you know, they, uh, that wasn't good. They didn't want any part yeah. of me. And uh, I remembered that feeling of isolation, but also um, just, I mean, to be honest with you, the group, I, you know, I was very <laughs> interested uh, in the opposite sex when I was uh, in, uh, even in late grade school, I mean, late grade school and then yeah. in, in high school. And I remembered, didn't have any game and didn't know 
how do you make that happen? How does somebody have a <laughs> sure. girl like you? And I didn't have any, I didn't have any idea. I had yeah. no, no clue. No and plan. I, I, no plan and no way to have a plan. And I, yeah. I, 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 I came of age slowly. I'm a late bloomer. So I, <laughs> I looked kind of like Anthony Michael Hall in 16 Candles <laughs> until I was about 20. And then, I mean, I really didn't become... I remember, you know, literally, I think I was 27 or 28 when I, I started to see myself in a mirror and go like, well, that's an adult, you know? But before that, I still had this, I was a very young looking uh, kid. Yeah. And so I've always thought that the reason Gossip Girl and, uh, or a 90210, the reason yeah. those shows resonate is that all of us wish secretly we could go back and be 17 with our current abilities. Oh my gosh, you know? yes. Because when you watch those shows, they'll, you know, a guy will walk up, you'll watch a gossip girl and a guy will walk up to Blake Lively and he'll say, I see the two of us having dinner tonight. It's <laughs> you know, it, it Henri's and you're gonna be there. And she'll be like, well, that's pretty forward. And he'll say like, oh, you'll be there. 7.30 sharp. And then she turns up at 7.30 and he's at the restaurant and he's wearing a tuxedo and she's wearing a killer dress. And he says like, hmm, good. You're three minutes late. I like that. You're impetuous. Have a seat. I ordered us some martinis, you know? And, and then he like whips out a American Express gold card and it's all paid for. And then he's like, listen, I'm going to Morocco tonight. But when I get back, we're going to talk about this. And then I have a biology test and then the SATs. And you're like, this is, this is just what I wanted. Yes. So, um, I've had great things happen to me and I've had bad things happen to me, uh, you know, highs and lows. And um, so, you know, when most things happen, if something happens that's not great, I have 75,000 other not great things that happen that, I, that are in the Rolodex that I can, you know, that are in the file system that I can check. Uh, and they sort of hold me up and I can adjust and figure out where this falls in the spectrum. But- you know, when you're 15, 16 and, you know, someone you really like and then you, you realize that they like somebody else. Yeah, oh gosh. It is operatic. It is operatic. <laughs> it, it is operatic. Is, it is, yeah. And it's like worthy of a crane shot and rain <laughs> and, and you know, we just, uh, you know. That's I this why high school along. shows are so good. I had uh, I had two jokes I wanted to run by you. Okay, feel free to stomp on it, pitch pitch in whatever you want to okay. do. But um, one of them is because this joke <laughs> this joke is because it's your birthday, yeah. and uh, which is my observation is that um, you can't really mention your birthday in the pandemic. Like when I in June I turned forty two, I was like. 
hey, it's my birthday. And everyone's like, have you seen the news? Some people I will know. never have a birthday again. <laughs> You're like, I was going to have a cake. No one has a cake. Maybe we'd sing a song. No one will ever sing a song again. I wish you'd never been born. And that's, that's just my parents. Yeah. <laughs> and then the only way you can celebrate yeah. your birthday is alone in a bathroom with the birthday song as the measurement of how long you should wash your hands. <laughs> and, and then if you want to give yourself they've a turned, special treat. Yeah, they've turned the birthday song into, they've, take, they've stripped it of all its joy and made it like an egg timer for when <laughs> the deadly virus will be off your hands. That's fantastic. If you want to give that. yourself a bonus while you're washing your hands, you whisper to yourself, this one's for me. <laughs> that's that's my Conan O'Brien birthday joke. I love that. I love uh I love that you know there's a thing they do um and it's uh, it's the media that does it. Uh I'm thinking about CNN in particular. But you know, have you noticed this through the pandemic where they would say, "Well, we hit a new number today of how many people had passed sure, away yeah. from and it's terrible. It's obviously terrible. And Wolf Blitzer would say, you know, well, the number today hit, you know, whatever the number was at that point. You know, today it hit 300,000. And you'd be like, oh my God, that's awful. You know, it's terrible. And then Wolf Blitzer, he did this every time. He would look into the camera and say, and let me remind you, those aren't just numbers. Oh my those gosh. are people. Oh and I'd go, gosh. uh-huh, I know. And then he'd say, mothers, fathers. Oh gosh, yeah. Grandfathers, grandmothers people that drove a cab, people that hailed a cab, you know, people that saw a cab. And I remember <laughs> yeah. thinking it was just like this, oh this, um, <laughs> this thing where I would be saying, I know, and I, I'm alone in the room watching the TV going, I know, I know Blitz, I know Wolf, I know Wolf Blitz, I know Wolf Blitzer, I know, I know, I know. And then I would start to kind of feel like, please, you know, and then the next day it would be like, today it's 300,025. Keep in mind, oh my not just a number, each one, someone who put on sneakers, maybe shoes, maybe tennis shoes, a tennis player, a tennis pro. And, and I would think, uh, yes, it's been a really tough time, but, uh, and it's, but it, it is, people have to keep finding ways. I don't think as humans, we're not meant, I mean, think about, the awful things humanity has gone through sure. just in the 20th century that that make COVID look like a walk in the park. I mean, it's just absolutely dreadful. And I don't, that's a whole, each one of those generations didn't say, well, there goes joy forever. They figured out a way, <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? And I, I do think it's, it's, a, it's a balancing act. It's terrible. This is awful. You should do well, that as a bit. You should, do st you should go out and do stand-up. Well, I did. I did stand up like a year and a half ago. Uh, we had this idea to go out on the road with comedians. And so I put together an act. Just I would show up at all the places that, you know, that we go. Uh, these, these little, you know, like I would go to Largo where I'm taping my show yeah, now. Yeah. Uh, and I would uh, um, go to the dynasty typewriter upside yeah, down yeah. cake and I I'd go to those places. Yeah, yeah. And I'd I'd go to these different places and I'd show up and I'd I'd do a set and I kept trying different stuff and and then, you know, stitching it together. And then out of it I think I got about 
30 minutes that was pretty, you know, like, okay, this works. Yeah. This just works. Yeah. And yeah. I this goes to that. And if the crowd's really good and you throw in crowd work, it would go, it could go to 45. I think my record once was it got up with a really good crowd in one of the cities. It was like, okay, I just did 45 minutes, just me. Um, and that went really well. So that was a great experience. But when you find something good, they like it every time, no matter where you go. Yeah. It just always worked. But I don't know if you find this, you know, they'd get to this point where it, you lose the joy of discovery. Yeah, you know yeah, of I mean? course, As, of course. And, and, then, and then you're, uh, and, you know, I had always had the luxury of, I mean, everything's a yin-yang. The, the, the luxury and the burden of every night, it has to be new, you know, uh, with, with Late Night and, and, uh, and the Conan Show. You just, it always has to be the new brand, what's new, what's new, what's new, and you can't repeat stuff. Uh, you can repeat a format, but you can't repeat a story or anything. And then you get to this point where you have, the, and I used to, in those days, dream, oh my God, what if I could just do the same thing every night? That would be so much <laughs> yeah. less stressful. And then you realize, well, then there's a whole other kind of burden of, you step outside yourself. Yeah. You've probably done this. You're doing your thing and people are loving it. Right. But you have this scary moment where you step, a ghost you steps outside you yeah. and watches you do it. That freaked me out. That yeah, totally I think that that's, out. you have to, as a performer, I think you, you got to acknowledge that and then figure out how to get back in. Yes. Basically. Yeah, yeah. I think that I that's that, the trick because I've definitely experienced what you're describing. I had that happen. I did a show in New York when we were doing the, the, the stand-up show and I was in uh, the Beacon Theater which is, I think, for my money, the best venue in, in New York City. Gorgeous. Uh, and just gorgeous and big, but somehow still intimate. Like yeah. really big, but intimate. Incredible. And, yeah. and so, uh, so I'm doing my thing and I'm in it and the crowd's really good. And then I had this moment where I got in my head for a second, sort of like, I don't, and people would think, well, that doesn't happen now at this stage in your life. <laughs> yeah, in your yeah, career. yeah. Like you're- you're, yeah. you're very established. You're, this is a whole crowd that's come to see you and paid a lot of money. I stepped out of my body. I could feel myself kind of step out of my body and I could have that unnerving, almost panic attack feeling of, I need to be back in my body because I'm in the Beacon Theater yeah. and I'm the guy on stage sure. and I'm the only guy on stage. <laughs> we didn't tape that show, but I think if you had a tape of it and you could look <laughs> you at it. You could spot it. You could see this ghostly image step yeah, out yeah. and then you could see the physical Conan pause for a second, like lick his lips for just a second and his eyes dart around and then the ghost me come back in and then a second of reassembling and then back into it. And it was horrifying, it was terrifying. But, but you know, I think what's different about your experience and mine in show business has been that you've filmed <laughs> thousands of shows mm-hmm. yeah, and projected yeah. them to millions of people. Right. And, 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 and what I've done for 20 years is performed for 50 people, 100 people, thousands of people. And right. so my goal, your goal is always sort of here. I'm playing to essentially millions of people through this thing, the lens. Right. And mine is like literally the the Beacon Theater 
is exactly what I do, which is I need to connect with these people yes. yeah. for, the, for 90 minutes. And that's my yeah. entire goal. Yes. But that is, it's really not any different because I never thought, all the years I was doing the TV show, I only thought about the people in 6A yeah. in, in, when I was doing Late Night. I just thought about giving those people a good show and there happened to be cameras here, but- I couldn't handle the idea that this is going out to you know millions of people in America with television sets who I'll never meet. That was too abstract. I didn't understand that. What I understood was this room. Yeah. And so I that's always how I've done it. And when we, you know, when I do the podcast, I don't think about the person uh, you know, maybe jogging in, through the park jog, and listening. Yeah, and, jogging and, and maybe in a different and, part of the world, you know. Yeah, yeah of course. People in China, people in Japan, yeah. Yeah, I talked to uh, someone who's a, a television host in Ireland, or uh, I did a Zoom interviewer, and he said, oh, was this morning I was you know, jogging through Phoenix Park in Dublin, and I was listening to your podcast with so-and-so, and I, I just thought, what do you mean you were, you're in Ireland? How can you be? And I still have that, uh, I still really do have that. I love that. I'm just doing it for the people in the room with me, and when I'm talking to you right now, it's just, it's us having this exchange. And this yeah. is, you know, what I like about this form is that this is the exchange that you and I, you know, the times you've come on the show, you've worked out your material, you talk to a segment producer, you come on the program, you know, when we do a, a TV experience yeah. and, and we, it's funny and it's and it's good. It's not it's 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 really funny and it's good and it's a good one of those, you know? Yeah. But then I don't know. What we're doing here is what you and I would do if we bumped into each yeah. other and said, <laughs> "Hey, uh, what are you doing right now?" Nothing. Do you, there's a Noah's bagel right here. Do you want to go <laughs> yeah, in and get yeah. some coffee and a bagel? Yeah. Uh yeah, okay. That's a good idea. And then we would have this conversation for an hour yeah, and really and crack each other up. And it would be, this would be it. And then I would come home and I'd say, yeah, I ran into Mike Brabiglia and man, we had a good time. And it was, I really like him. This, this is a core sample of that, which is very accurate, uh, which is something that I find kind of joyous about this format. Pete, uh, our mutual friend, Pete Holmes, Mm-hmm. has uh has has said to me cuz we we've talked quite a bit during the pandemic and he's made the point that what he misses most and this completely captures what i miss most about pre-pandemic is the randomizer machine of life and his mm-hmm. example is precisely that on the street you happen to yes. run into someone you went to high school with and you go oh let's grab coffee or let's walk a couple blocks together yes. and you didn't know that was going to happen when you left your house and that's gone right now yeah i mean there's no uh that is absolutely true and um i'm no fan of pete holmes but that is true <laughs> i'll go with him <laughs> i'm going to send this to him immediately Please, please tell Pete. Uh, no, Pete, absolutely hilarious, uh, uh, great talent, and I adore him. And I've had a lot no, of good no, laughs with no, Pete no, Holmes. No, don't try to don't try to walk this one back. You're right. I don't like Pete Holmes. I'm just <laughs> not a fan. I don't get it. Um, I think one of the last experiences I had with Pete Holmes was I was taping my podcast with some other guests. This is before the pandemic, and. 
um, that futuristic cinema in Hollywood was right across the street. It's across uh, <laughs> the Hollywood Boulevard, the Arclight, and uh, diagonally across the street. And we all decided, hey, let's go watch Once Upon a Time in America, the, the Leonardo DiCaprio in, in Brad Hollywood. Pitt movie. What? I mean, Once Upon a Time in, uh, in Hollywood. Uh, anyway, we decided to go across the street and see that movie, just a matinee on the fly. And I invite the engineer and I invite, a couple of the people there, and I'm like, come on, it's, it's how, I'm taking us all to the movies. I wanted to be the fun dad. So we walk into the arc light, and who's there uh, but Pete and his wife, Val, and they're going to see it, and we're the only people seeing it. In That's all the of randomizer Hollywood. machine. That's the randomizer machine. Then I get to enjoy another random experience, which is Pete, <laughs> who is a full-grown adult, <laughs> buys nine different kinds of jellied candies. No. Yes. No. And popcorn no. and a soda. Stop. He buys literally Stop one of it. everything. Then he no. sits down and we're watching the machines and he's like opening bags and it's stuff oh, that, no. that would kill a diabetic in like eight seconds. No, and he's I'm like gummy bears mixed with popcorn oh, and he's chomping away. Yes, embarrassing for Pete Holmes, not embarrassing for me and not embarrassing for you, <laughs> Mike Rabiglia. So uh, my point is Pete Holmes has a real problem with sugary treats. All right, so this last joke, <laughs> this last joke is, uh, this is a dedicated to our Irish friends who I hope, like your podcast, are listening to my podcast as well, is uh, I feel like Irish accents are contagious. Like I was in Dublin and I said to this guy, which way is it to the airport? And he goes, it's right up the highway, lad. And I said, oh, is it now? <laughs> he just and suddenly go into it. He said, that's not what I sound like. And I said, don't you? He said... <laughs> Wait a minute, now you're in Fargo. He, <laughs> he said... Don't you now? <laughs> he said, be gone with you. I said, top of the morning to you. He said, it's five in the afternoon. I said, it feels like morning whenever I'm eating my lucky charms. He said, that's okay. a little offensive. <laughs> I said, well, hindsight is the best insight to foresight. He said, I'm glad you've learned your lesson. And I said, <laughs> hold on, hold on, I'm almost done, I'm almost done. <laughs> he said, <laughs> I got, he, okay, he said, well, I'm glad you've learned your lesson. I said, well, you know what they say? You can't start a fire without a spark. I said, he said, I think that's by Bruce Springsteen. I said, oh, is it now? I said, will you drive me to the airport and I'll stop doing this accent? He said, feck off. And so I get out of his car and I never seen him again. And that right there is a classic Irish story where the only part that's true was the first sentence. <laughs> like that. By the way, I have like <laughs> 10 more pages. I cut yeah. it on the fly because I was like, okay, this is way too long. I did a thing in uh, Dublin once and we rounded up. Uh, it was at the American Ambassador's Residence in Dublin and they rounded up uh, all these great, uh, Irish comedians, like really some of the funniest Irish comedians, and they were all fantastic. And I remember Daro Breen being particularly funny. He's a wonderful comic and no relation to me. Uh, maybe, I'm sure somewhere, you know, a couple thousand years ago. But uh, to, so we all had this wonderful night and everybody was so funny. And then afterwards they said, 
you know, let's let's all go out for a pint. You know, let's go get a pint. Because uh, the American, the, the ambassador said, well, good night, fellows. That was a good time. Conan, <laughs> your room's at the top of the stairs. And I said, well, uh, they said, no, Conan, let's get out of here. Let's go get a drink. So we all went and we hailed a cab and we all crammed into this cab to go to this pub that they knew. And the cabbie starts talking and the cabbie's funnier than any of us. <laughs> By a mile. Oh, I love that. Just I naturally love that funny. Story. And I'm like, oh, that's Ireland. That's Ireland's Ireland. Ireland's amazing. Ireland's yeah, amazing. Get, get nine of the funniest people you can ever find yeah. and do a show there and then say, let's go get a drink. And there'll be an elevator operator to take you down to the first floor yeah. and he'll blow all of you out of the room. Isn't that amazing? You know? Ireland is, uh, after the pandemic, I'm really hoping uh, to travel. Uh, mm-hmm. in excess and uh and ireland is one of the first places i want to go it's just it, the greatest people and yep. i apologize for my awful accent but i do think that the premise of that joke irish accents are contagious is a truism yes well we have the guy as you know the guy who runs the largo theater who we all call flanny flanagan yeah. um he's from belfast yeah. And every day I go in to tape my show now. Uh, we do we Zoom interview and we do the, the Conan show on Turner, TBS. Uh, we do it at the Largo Theater. And he's there and he's always like, ah, oh, it puts me in mind of a story. You know, I'll tell you something. And then I start talking that way. It's exactly the same thing you're talking about. I'm like, ah, feck off. Flanagan, no one wants to hear your, your shite. They don't say oh. shit. I love that. They go shite. Oh I don't need God. any of your shite. Ah, uh. oh, it puts me in mind of a story. So we end on a thing called working it out for a cause. Uh, I mm-hmm. donate to a cause that uh, that you're interested in. In the past, when I was on your podcast, you suggested uh, Cor Unum, which yes. is a, a a food bank in the the in Greater Boston area. It's in Lawrence, Massachusetts, and um, it's uh, it's a it's actually a very inspiring story. A good friend of mine, again, I keep bringing up people whose last name is O'Brien and they're no relationship to me, <laughs> but uh, a really brilliant guy I know, Paul O'Brien, Father Paul O'Brien, uh, a Catholic priest. Uh, he He's someone who I got to know a number of years ago. We actually went to college together and he joined the priesthood and he's just made it his life's mission to do a lot of good work. And he started... Uh, he had this idea to build this uh, shelter that would be very classy and give people in Lawrence, Massachusetts, and let me preface this by saying Lawrence is, I think, per capita, the poorest city in the United States. It's absolutely a devastated city. And he said, the biggest problem is, he said, I can't get kids to out of a gang. I can't get kids to go to school if they're hungry. The first thing you gotta do is feed people. So what he did is he raised all this money he got a lot of people involved. I got involved, but so many other people uh, did so much more than I did. And um, he built this incredibly beautiful, classy, I mean, it looks like a high-class restaurant, like this atrium, this wow. open area. And his rule was, no one stands in line for food. You walk in and you sit down at a table and you're waited on by wow. volunteers to give people their dignity. That's incredible. So, yeah, my my cause uh, usually, and I would make it my cause again, is core unum because I've gone there, I've brought my kids there, and we've served people, and um, it's uh, it's 
it's just one of the best experiences you can have. And you can see it's the simple stuff. You know, we, we, I, we live in this world where it's click here and you'll donate money, donate money to this problem in a part of the world that you'll never get to. And yes, that's good to do, but um, feeding people food uh, in, in this, it's so primal. Like it's so like, this yeah. is, it's the basic, get them some food yeah. and do it with dignity, let them have their dignity. And uh, that gives them a chance to turn things around. So I'm gonna donate to them and then uh, we're gonna link to Corunum in the show notes so that people can give as well. And and uh, and I wanna thank you for coming on, Conan, because you're someone who I have admired comedically uh, and personally for so many years. Oh, and it's, thank it's you. one of those things about this business that there's so many rocky things about it, uh, but uh, the fact that you and I have been able to, uh, you know, be friendly over the years and from your podcast, Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, we've embarked on what I believe will be a true friendship. Hey, listen, this has been, a, I love this. This is, and like I say, it's, uh, this isn't work. I don't know what this is. It's just a lot of fun. <laughs> and and the idea that I know for a fact that sometime, anytime in the future now, someone's going to come up to me on the street and say, I just heard you with Mike Birbiglia. That was really fun. Um, once they edited it and made it better. Uh, <laughs> that makes me happy. So thank you, Mike. Thank you. Working it out because it's not done. We're working it out because there's no... That's going to do it for another episode of Working It Out. Uh, Conan O'Brien, holy cow. Longest episode ever. That's the longest episode we've ever done. Uh, you can you can find Conan O'Brien very easily just by typing Conan O'Brien into a computer and you'll find it all. <laughs> uh, if you like the show, give us a star rating or a, even if you're feeling generous, write us a, a user uh, review, uh, tweet about it, uh, post something on Instagram about it. We don't advertise anywhere. It's literally just you listening to it, <laughs> telling <laughs> telling people, and then that's how people find the show. And uh, and this has been it's been almost a year, and it's uh, this I feel like it's getting better and better. We're having more and more fun with it, and uh, and the and the guests really lo- have seemed to lock into what. The show is, and it's very exciting for me, so thanks for being a part of the journey. Our producers of Working It Out are myself, along with Peter Salamon and Joseph Berbiglia, consulting producer Seth Barish, sound mix by Kate Belinsky, associate producer Mabel Lewis. Thanks to my consigliere, Mike Berkowitz, as well as Marissa Hurwitz and Josh Upfall. Special thanks to Jack Antonoff, that's his music running through the show. As always, a very special thanks to my wife, the poet, J. Hope Stein, our book, the new one, Painfully True Stories from a Reluctant Dad with Poems by J. Hope Stein is in your local bookstore. Support your local books. Support your local pizza. Support your local grocers. Uh, And as always, a special thanks to our daughter, Una, who created this radio for it, which makes this sound so nice. Thanks most of all to you who have listened. Tell your friends. Maybe even tell your enemies. We are... We're working it out. See you next time, everybody.